Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Sam. And I'm Caitlin. This episode I am back down in England to tell you about the murders of Nicola Fellows and Karen Hadaway, which is also dubbed as the Babes in the Wood murders. Okay, so this is actually another one about children. So just a child warning. If you don't like hearing about children on true crime, then please skip it. You can listen to one of our old episodes if you fancy. Um, But if you don't mind, please just, you know, keep listening. Um, But Caitlin, have you heard of this one? I've not, actually. Um, I'll admit, I thought that was like a mispronunciation or typo when you said babes because that's quite interesting. Like, I thought it was going to be babies at first. So I'm interested to see where this goes. Um, yeah. Looking forward to it. Yeah, no, no. Well, so I'll just give you the reason why it was dubbed Babes in the Wood Murders. Now, it's not the only one that has been dubbed that by the media. Of course, the media is involved. Um, but the reason for it is because there was a children's tale. It wasn't like a nursery rhyme, but you know, like Hansel and Gretel, that sort of thing, like Brothers Grimm, but it's not a Brothers Grimm one. Um, right, yeah, was- yeah. And it was about babes in the wood, which really is just like children in the woods. And it's not a happy fairy tale. It is literally like Hansel and Gretel. So the children go into the woods and I believe they are then murdered and found in a bunch of sticks. So then the media going forward have like taken that. And so any children. Right. Okay. Are then so like two or more children, they're like babes in the woods if that makes sense. No, so, it does, it does. It. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, I was going to no. say it does. I think it's just a typical media thing, isn't it? Where they like love giving a name to it. Like I thought maybe it was the public or the police, but actually the minute you said it was media, I was like, right, of course, because media just love giving a name to things. Um, oh, yeah. So that makes so much more sense. They need a slogan. They need a slogan. Um, but yeah, so I'll just begin and I'll start off by telling you actually about a man named Russell Bishop. Now, Russell was born on the 9th of February, 1966. He was the youngest of five brothers and grown up, he had some learning difficulties such as dyslexia. And so he struggled at school. At the age of 15, though, he was sent to a school that helps children affected with such learning difficulties, which in the 70s, I would say is quite a big thing because my dad, he clearly had dyslexia or something because he could not spell oh, yeah. for shit um, and he wasn't great at reading. He was brilliant at math, so like countdown, he was the go-to guy. Um, I think that's a very common thing, though, like that age, school schooling just wasn't a thing. Do you know, like you just kind of didn't go to school or you just didn't really learn to do certain things like that. So I think... Yeah, I think that's very rare as you're talking about him going to school specifically like that. That's very, very rare. Yeah, and it's not the fact that people didn't go to school. So it's like my dad, he grew up in the 70s in Glasgow. He did have dyslexia, but he just got the belt and sent to woodwork instead. So there wasn't much support as it was than there is like nowadays. So that's why I say it's more of a shocker. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. what I meant because of that is then people aren't going to go to school. Oh, like, yeah, why would completely. your dad then go to school if he's going to get, like, beaten for being bad at school? So he's then exactly. like, why am I wasting my time going if every time I go and I try, they're, like, wrong? So do you know what I mean? That's what I meant, like, ended up being that people didn't get an education because it's like, well, I'm not good at this, so I'm going to end up getting 
guard, so I might as well just not go. Yeah, absolutely. And there was just no help. So that's why when I read it, I was like, oh my God. Um, Russell did withdraw himself from that school, though, altogether. And then he got homeschooled by his parents, Roy and Sylvia Bishop. Now, Sylvia was strict and she worked as a dog trainer who competed in crafts. Now, those that don't know crafts, um, it's like a dog show. Practically, like, if you had a Nintendo and you had Nintendo dogs, your dog was oh. chilly. Yeah. Yeah, mine wasn't. Yeah, it's Mine's basically agility for dogs, isn't it? But crafts is meant to be like a really good day out. Totally well, day I have out. been, I have been shock horror. No, it was because my friends, my friends, oh, my, sorry. I, oh, I'm not, don't you? <laughs> but no, um, I know a person that works for Purina, is it? So he got his tickets and met Claire Balding. Um, however, Oh God, this story says more Tory to it, but it smells like I was dog, say. and I'm a cat person. So all in all, we kind of I went with my gran, and we just went to the shops. Fair. So apologies to who gave us the tickets. Anyway, we're off topic now. Roy's dad, he was a roofer who would look after the family when Sylvia was working away. You know, she was training other people's dogs as well, and she was like, you know, when you have those people and they're like spruffing them up and making them nice. Now, as he grew up. His final height that he stands at was five foot five, and he was around ten stone. So he's roughly about four inches smaller than the average UK male height. And let's be honest, he suffers from small man syndrome. Now, Russell liked to make up stories and exaggerate the truth a lot to make him look like some Jack the Lad. One claim he made was that he was wrongly arrested in connection with the 1984 IRA bombing of the Grand Hotel in Brighton. Now, why would you want to even be connected to that is beyond me. But this is a sort of complex he had. He wanted yeah. to be known. Yeah. And it. Like we spoke about stuff like that before, though. Remember that people that just do that thing of like, yeah, I, I did this crime, and they didn't. They just want to be known for it. So obviously, he's not even got the ball to commit crimes, but is pretending he's been done for the crimes he didn't even commit. Yeah, no, exactly. And it would come to crimes. He would get in trouble. He would cause trouble, trouble as well, or just overall, he was just trying to be a big guy when he wasn't. You know, he was five foot five and quite. He wasn't. Jack Blood. Now, in 1986, Russell was working as a roofer, like his dad, and he lived in Brighton. He was a petty thief and he regularly broke into parked cars to steal whatever was in them. Now, he wasn't actually very good at that either, so sometimes he would do well and other times, you know, he'd walk away with nothing. He had a couple of love interests as well going on and his official partner at the time was a Jennifer Johnson. Now, he also had a 16-year-old girlfriend called Marion Stevenson. And let's just note here that we're in 1986 and Russell is now 20 years old. Now, no age is just a number, but I personally feel when you're that young, it's not the case. Age isn't just a number, especially in this day and age. I can understand in my grandparents' day and age because everybody was so innocent, so it was practically just a number. But yeah, you, you, I think it's a more common thing back then, wasn't it, for a bigger age gap? Yeah, definitely. Um, and because of this, he was obviously going behind Jennifer's back about that, and everybody in the local community knew what he was doing, so he wasn't very well liked in the local area. As well as the whole petty thief business and the whole attitude as I'm a lad, as well as being a bit of a boy racer, stupidly driving about the streets, so all in all, not the best of reputations. Now, on the 9th of October 1986, just after about 4pm, Russell 
Marion and Marion's friend Tracy knocked on the door of the Fellows family. Now, the Fellows consisted of mum and dad, Barry and Susan, aged 37, and they had been married for about 16 years. They had a 14-year-old son, Jonathan, a nine-year-old daughter, Nicola, and Susan's mum lived there too, called Edna. Their house was situated on Lewis Road, which was near Wild Park in Brighton, which is a local nature reserve. Now, the reason they were knocking on the fellow's door was that a year earlier, Barry's pal, Doogie Judd, had moved in with them. Now, Doogie was 21 at the time and he was living with his mum, but he hadn't been getting on. And so Barry allowed him to move in with him and his family. Nicola had to share a room with her gran, which then made space for Doogie. Anyways, Russell knew Doogie and that is why they were at the door that evening. Now, Nicola, nine-year-old Nicola, actually answered the door the time they were knocking and she had told Russell that Doogie wasn't in and then she slammed the door in their face while calling Marion a slag. Now, this exchange was overheard by Michelle Hadaway, who was the mum of Nicola's best friend, nine-year-old Karen Hadaway. Michelle and Nicola were round at the house at the time and Michelle herself wasn't a fan of Russell either and she overheard what Nicola had said but she had actually forbidden Karen to ever go near him. So time goes on and at about 5pm Nicola and Karen and Karen's sister Lindsay were playing outside in the street with other kids which is completely normal. They all usually played at the play park along the road, which their mums could see from their houses to keep an eye on them from the distance. Now, the two of them decided to go off and do their own thing and headed off to Wild Park. And they missed their tea, which they probably both knew they'd get in a right tailing off for when they got home. But, you know, as a nine year old, you're too engrossed on going out and having fun and having an adventure. And you're like, I'll just face the consequences when I get home. Because it's like when we were younger, Caitlin you couldn't go past the orange wall or if you were on a bike you I wasn't allowed past the flats but you just did it yeah yeah of course you did it and then your parents weren't to know exactly where you were but there was so many times that we like definitely missed curfew or didn't realize it yeah and you'd be up the woods or something and you'd be like now as an adult I could probably think oh okay if my mum looked out the window she probably was a bit worried but you know back then you don't care. But see you're thinking actually back then we didn't have phones or anything because I actually don't remember how we knew the time. Well the, no you'd just have Karen shouting at her door being like dinner and that was it. Or get yeah, in. or it'd be like when it starts getting dark and I'd be like well this is actually isn't my understanding of dark this is still quite light. Yeah, exactly. You're like, I'm staying out longer. Everybody's on the field. Anyway, again, we digress. Now, over the next few hours, Nicola and Karen were spotted by various people throughout their adventure. Roy Daswell, who was the park keeper at the Wild Park, saw them at around 5.15pm playing in a tree near the edge of Lewis Road that is opposite a row of shops, so not too far from home. He spoke to the girls and did the usual adult warning, you know, warning them not to hurt themselves on the tree and to be careful. At the same time, a local resident, Albert Barnes, was walking his dog. And so the four of them chatted for a while. And then the two of them gave the men a leaf as a gift and then carried on away with their adventure. At around the same time the girls were talking to Royal in Albert, a lady called Dorinda Brackenridge and her brother Paul had seen Russell Bishop walking along the central reservation of Caldine Lane. 
Russell had went over to speak to Paul to tell him that his car had broken down, that Russell's car had broken down. And he also told him about a shoulder injury he apparently got while playing football. Now, if any of this is true, who knows? It's Russell. He talks a lot of nonsense. Now, Paul remembers Russell wearing a blue jumper at this time when he saw him. Now, this is important later on, so just take a note of that. Jump to about 6.15pm, where local resident Wendy Robertson had spotted Nicola and Karen leaving the local chippy, which is a word we use for a fish and chip shop, for those that are not aware, as they had bought a bag of chips. Now, Janet Reed, who was another local resident, had also spotted both girls with what she thought was a bag of chips, each at around 25 past six. Now, Janet recalls Nicola spotting her and waving to her because she knew Janet. Only 10 minutes or so later, a Kevin Carhart, who was driving, said he saw two young girls on the central reservation of Lewis Road about to cross into Wild Park. Around about that time, the girls also bumped into 14-year-old Michelle Tippett, who had told them to tell their mums where they were before they get in trouble, as they told her they were heading to Wild Park. Now, Nicola and Karen obviously did not take Michelle's advice. Now, also on their adventure, the girls were seen by a Sean Nye, who was a student at the same school as Nicola. He said he spotted them at about 6.30, walking past the police box. So jump back to Russell Bishop for a minute. He had been seen by Dorinda and Paul at the back of five as he was speaking to Paul about his car. And then at about the back of six, he was seen by Mark and Kevin Doyle walking past the same police box the girls had passed not long before. Now, Mark knew it was Russell as they played football together. These were the last two sightings of the girls by Sean and by brothers Mark and Kevin for Russell. Around this time frame, Karen's dad, Lee, had called her mum, Michelle, at about 6pm that night to check in as he was actually working away as he was a lorry driver. And she told him about the situation and said she didn't know where Karen was, even though she had only been out for about an hour and she could no longer see, him play, see her playing outside. And so Lee told Michelle to see how things go and that he'll call back in about 30 minutes to get an update to see if she was back. When Lee called back, there was still no update. And so Michelle went over to Nicola's mum's house again to speak to Susan to see if she was going through the same. Now, the women went to ask other kids if they knew where Nicola and Karen had gone. And one kid had said that he had saw them last speaking to Roy, the park keeper. And so they went to Wild Park and did a small search whilst calling out their daughter's names. Nicola and Karen did not show up or reply to their calls. And so they headed back to their houses to see if the girls had, in fact, went home and they were just waiting on them. Now, again, like you mentioned earlier, Caitlin, this is the 80s. They don't have the privilege of a mobile phone to call around and keep in touch and check multiple areas and get updates right away. There's no social media. we would be like, I saw a site in here, there and everywhere. Nothing. I know. And I think actually as becoming like an adult, like obviously none of us have kids, but when you're younger, like why does going home on time matter? Like it's absolutely fine. We're just up in the woods having fun. It's fine. But as an adult, the thought of like an eight-year-old in my care going up to the woods and playing and not coming home on time that would give me the absolute fear yeah I couldn't agree more and uh, you'd do the exact same you'd go looking for them straight away you'd probably like most cases you'd overreact you'd find them and they'd just be like I was just at the park what are you doing you know and it would go right over their head many a time me and you like Karen and Tracy what's the beef yeah exactly but 
Unfortunately, on in this case, though, when they did return back home, the girls were nowhere in sight. And so the worry began to grow and they called the police at 8.36pm. Now, not long after the call, there was a large amount of police searching the area for the girls who were now classed as missing. As they found nothing that night, the police were told to stand down at 2am because, you know, it's pitch black. You just could be making things worse. Now, that night, though, as well, they did carry their, out their door to door checks of the area just to get any information. And at around 2.30, they actually knocked on Russell Bishop's door. Now, his partner, Jennifer, answered and led the officers to the bedroom where Russell was asleep. Russell told the officers that they had seen uh, Nicola at her house when he was by there hours earlier when he was looking for his pal Doogie. And then the last time he'd seen both girls was later in the evening, speaking to Roy, the park keeper. So then the police took that and they left for the night. Now, on the 10th of October, the local community and the police were out searching for the girls again at the crack of dawn, whilst the police were conducting their interviews still. Later in the morning of the 10th of October, at 10am, the police went back to Russell Bishop's house to question him further because he was on the list of one of the last people that he saw the girls the day before. As he told Paul the day before that his car had broken down and he'd walked home on his trip home, he said he went to the newsagents to buy a paper, but it turned out he had no money on him. And so he left the shop and headed home, but cannot confirm the time because he cannot remember. He did tell the police that he was wearing a blue top and jeans. And when he did so, Jennifer popped to the bedroom and came back with a blue top that had a white stripe on it. And then Russell confirmed to the police that this was the top he was wearing. So with this information, the police left Bishop to get on with the rest of his day. Now, just after 4pm on the same day, Kevin Rowland and his friend Matthew Marchant spotted a body in a makeshift den in Wild Park. The boys were close to the body, only a few feet away when they realised what they had come across. And they did not want to go any closer without getting the police over. And so one remained at the body whilst the other ran off to locate a policeman. At a different area of the park, Russell Bishop was out walking his dog when he bumped into PC Paul Smith and said he was looking for the girls and that they had either gone north or were dead. According to his dog, that apparently it was insured for £17,000. However, Misty was in no way a sniffer dog. It was just another one of Russell's stories. He then said to PC Paul that he is going to stop his search now for the girls because if he had found them dead, then he would get nicked, which means arrested. Now, Paul asked why he thought that and Russell replied with it. Well, because I have a criminal record. All very bizarre a conversation to have with a police officer during a search for missing young girls, in my opinion. Now, whilst this conversation was happening, that's when PC Smith heard a boy shouting and running towards them, shouting that they found them. As Russell was younger and fitter than PC Smith, he ran off first, going after the boy and PC Smith followed. Now, PC Smith did ask Russell if he could keep the young lads away from the crime scene if they got there before him. Now, when Russell got there to where the boys had found the bodies, he tried to get closer and closer. However, Kevin, one of the young guys, actually stopped him from doing this. Now, to think that a young boy has more sense than a grown 20-year-old, it doesn't shock me, but here we are. Now, when PC Smith arrived at the scene, he asked them all how the girls were. And Russell came out with, 
They're fucking dead. Now, he says this. However, he hasn't gotten any closer than the other two boys, and he couldn't actually confirm how the girls were, how they looked, and from where they were all standing, you couldn't actually see if there were two people there or not. So all in all, a complete arrogant response from Russell, and I would say quite suspicious. In order for PC Smith to reach the scene, he had to crawl on his belly in the undergrowth to get there. Now, once he was there, he sadly saw the bodies of both Nicola Fellows and Karen Hadaway. PC Smith did check both girls for a pulse, but they were dead. Nicola was lying face up with her legs up and she had a bruised face and bloody nose. Karen was on her side at a right angle to Nicola's body with her head face down on Nicola's lap. This was now a crime scene and the area was cordoned off to investigate whilst Nicola and Karen's parents were informed as well as the community. Now everyone was obviously distraught. Not now, not long before the two boys had found Nicola and Karen's body, a local man named Robert Gander had saw a woman on a footpath looking at something, like with a bit of suspicion, and then continuing on. So he was intrigued and he went to look for himself. And that's when he came across a dirty blue jumper lying on the grass verge, only a few yards away from where the girls' bodies were found. Robert swore he could see blood on it, and so he handed it into a police incident van that was set up in the park. Now, the contents of the van were then taken to Brighton Police Station once the girls had been found because the van was then cleared to make way for the murder investigation. Now, the contents of the van, once at the station, were kind of forgotten about for a while, but they dealt with everything else. Now, Russell Bishop then started going around the place where he told some of the locals that he was the one who discovered the bodies of the girls. He also told other folk that he was the one to go up and check their pulse and that he was the one to confirm they were dead. So this raises suspicions as is, like, and yes, he's a pathological liar and he seems to want to be part of anything that's going about, even if it is bad. But in this case, though, clearly... This is not looking good for him, as remember, he was also wearing a blue jumper on the night they went missing. Police questioned Russell further, but each time his whereabouts of the evening of the 9th kept changing and were inconsistent. At one point, he said he had planned to meet Marion Stevenson, and on this journey, that would have taken him down the path where the blue jumper was found. And so it was changed again, and he said he went to the newsagents with no money, like I had mentioned earlier. And another time he said that he had just went home and the house was empty, and so he made his dinner and put on a washing, which wasn't like him at all. At all. Now, Russell then went on to say that his partner Jennifer arrived home about 8.30pm, and then at another time he said he got home to watch some TV, but he can't remember what he was watching, which, totally, you can say that's fair enough nowadays, because to a certain extent, because especially if it's background noise like you know if you just put on something and you're like I don't have a clue what I'm on I'm just on my phone or something or doing other chores but this is 1986 you've got four channels and not many more I'm guessing even if he had Sky like let's be real you would remember what you were watching in one of Russell's interviews he also explained to the police that he had checked the girls' pulses, confirmed they were dead, and then he also explained the positions and conditions their bodies were in, when there was no way he could know all this unless he was somewhat involved in their murder. 
Now, the post-mortem results were in and it was revealed that both girls' cause of death was from strangulation. Due to the amount of bruising and the patterns on them, it was likely that the killer had used their bare hands to strangle them rather than, you know, an object like string, belt, etc. Now, both girls had been sexually assaulted before and after death. Now, one crucial point of the post-mortem conducted by Dr. West was that he managed to remove fibres from the clothing of each girl's skin, hair and clothes. And this also included fibres from clothing that didn't appear to match what the girls were wearing. So it didn't belong to them. So back to Russell. He changed his story multiple times, like I was saying. And then when the police showed him his notes from previous interviews, he then changed it back again, just so that they would match. All in all, it's nonsense after nonsense. His, his story was changed multiple times. He had no clear alibi between 6.30 and 8.30 of the night of the disappearance. And he was finally arrested on the 31st of October, 1986, only after one of the crime officers was made aware of the blue sweatshirt, you know, that was in the storage, where he then tested it for traces of blood, which came back as a weak positive result. Now, this sounds like great news. However, Unfortunately, the crime officer, Eddie, who tested the blood, didn't follow the proper procedures. He should have had the testing sanctioned by the incident room first, rather than just doing it off the cuff himself. Also, with regards to the blue sweatshirt, no one can prove, could prove it was in fact Russell's because nobody could say for certain he was definitely wearing it on the night of the disappearance. But... 11 green fibres and four pink fibres were found on the top and they were indistinguishable from Nicola's pink jumper and Karen's green jumper. There was also ivy hairs found that would link to the den where the girls' bodies were found, along with animal hairs that may have belonged to Russell's dog, Misty. But even with all of this, no hairs of the girls were found on the blue sweatshirt and none of Russell's hairs were found on the girls or their clothing. Three hairs and a fibre, though, were found on Nicola's stomach, but not examined further. And I do not have any further information as to why they were not examined. Now, the trial began at the end of 1987. And the jury read out explicit letters written between Russell and a 13-year-old girl whilst he was awaiting trial. He wrote, I know how old you are, babe. He, he. 16 or 17 more weeks and I'll be out up to no good again. I just hope you can handle it because I'm a man and not a boy. I know you've been looking for it for a long time from me. He even urged her to go on the pill to prepare for his release. Now, the trial was halted briefly because of this, because Russell shouted out that this was not agreed evidence and to stop it now. So this was just put out there. And so, like any jury, a judge, etc., you can't put it towards the case, can you? Now, with this information, you could feel, though, it was building up a case against Russell. However... There were many errors and no hard evidence against Russell. At trial, there were some of the errors that came to light. The temperature of the girls' bodies wasn't actually taken and it wasn't recorded. And so they could not accurately state the time of death. And so this stopped the prosecution from being able to challenge Russell's alibi and whereabouts of that night. Because they don't have a time. 
fingerprints that were left by the strangler weren't actually taken and neither were the hand measurements or the marks that were left around their necks. Blood sampled on Karen's underwear did not get analysed and the blue sweatshirt was not preserved correctly and so this meant that the prosecution again could not use this as Russell's defence were able to cast doubt as to the reliability of the evidence. So they had all of that couldn't, the prosecution couldn't make up a, a story, could they? And the defence could just fight back and just tell them, we're not, you can't have this. Now, other, under further questioning at trial, Russell denied that the sweatshirt belonged to him, but his girlfriend, Jennifer, alleged the clothing was his. So the prosecution hoped this would undermine his credibility and portray him as a liar who was trying to distance himself from a crucial piece of evidence. Because let's face it, the prosecution aren't really having a great time here. However, at the trial, Jennifer changed her story, telling the jury she had never seen the top before and she also gave statements to defence counsel alleging that she had never made her witness statement confirming Bishop's ownership of the sweatshirt and that it had been fabricated by the police and her initials forged. So again, that's out. Because of all of this, Russell Bishop was actually acquitted of the sexual assault and murder of Nicola and Karen on the 10th of December 1987, after the jury deliberated for only two hours before coming to this conclusion. Once he was acquitted, Russell then went on to sell his story to the newspapers for £15,000. Now, the paper was the News of the World, which was one of the biggest British newspaper giants throughout its time from 1843 to 2011. Now, in 2011, it did shut itself down because it was so disgraced and ceased its publication following the allegations that member of its, members of its staff were responsible for the illegal hacking of telephones that was happening to, you know, celebrities, politicians, etc. Big news, big news. But no, that was then taken off the shelves. Now, this is not where this episode ends, and so I'll just keep going. Now, after his freedom and release, Russell Bishop was later convicted of the abduction, molestation, sorry, I can't pronounce it, but he molested someone, an attempted murder. That's the one. Thank you. And attempted murder of a seven-year-old girl, Rachel, at Devil's Dyke in East Sussex on the 4th of February 1990. Now, Russell was sentenced on the 13th of December 1990, and he got at least 14 years before eligibility for release. Now, Russell had committed these awful crimes against a seven-year-old girl, and he also ditched his clothes nearby, just like what the killer who murdered Nicola and Karen did four years earlier. The crime was also very similar. However, the main part that wasn't similar was the fact that this wee girl survived, which Russell clearly was not expecting. The girl managed to pick Russell out from a lineup, which resulted in his arrest. Now, whilst all this is going on, we need to remember that Nicola and Karen's case is still unsolved. In July 2002, their case was subject to review and DNA profiling, but it was, no, it was not successful, and so it remained cold. 
Jump to April 2005, where the double jeopardy laws are changed in Britain. Now, we spoke about double jeopardy in our very first episode many moons ago, as that was brought in following the World's End murders. This law was put together so that a suspect couldn't be tried twice for the same crime. Now, with the new legislation in 2005, this meant that now a criminal could, in fact, face a new trial for a crime they had already been tried for if substantial new evidence came to light. Now, this sounds great, doesn't it? Like any law, it comes with good and bad results, you know. Now, jump to January 2006, forensic tests managed to link Russell Bishop and the blue sweater. But in September 2006, the High Court decided that that was not enough evidence for Russell to face a second trial for the murders. And so this was another emotional roller coaster for the families of both girls to go through. Now, jump to 2011 and 2012, where a cold case review of the murders was conducted. Eurofin's forensic services was engaged and the same their the same forensic team that helped bring the killers of Stephen Lawrence to justice. Now, I don't believe we've yet covered the murder of Stephen. I'm sure it is on the list. I feel it's definitely a Caitlin case. So I look forward to hearing that from you, Caitlin, in the future. What one is it? Stephen Lawrence. It, it definitely. I don't know. It was a Stephen Port. He was a strangler, murderer guy. Um, but no, Stephen Lawrence. So... Yeah, I definitely feel it is one of yours. So, yeah, stay tuned, okay, everyone. Okay, I'll put it on my list. Great. Now, Senior Scientific Advisor Roy Green at Eurofins was asked in August 2012 to re-examine the evidence and he recovered a billion-to-one DNA match linking Russell Bishop to the discarded sweatshirt and a taping from Karen's left forearm was also found to contain Bishop's DNA. On the 3rd of November, a full re-investigation of forensics takes place. Now, science has moved on a long way since 1986, as we all know. Now, that was 2012. Jump to the 10th of May 2016. A man, initially not named for legal reasons, was arrested for these murders, but nothing came of that, and he was released. But again in May 2016, Bishop was removed from his cell at Franklin Prison in County Durham and taken to the local police station where he was arrested for the murders of Karen Hadaway and Nicola Fellows. In December 2017, the Court of Appeal ordered quashing the 1987 acquittal and called for a second jury trial for Russell Bishop. On the 2nd of February 2018, the Press Association reported that Russell was to stand trial at the Old Bailey, accused of the murder of the two girls in Brighton in 1986, and this trial was scheduled for the 15th of October 2018. Now, Prosecutor Brian Altman, QC, told the jury the case against Bishop was not just based on his attempt to kill another child in a similar manner, but on other compelling evidence. He explained 
sorry, significant part of the inquiry had been to re-evaluate various areas of scientific work that were performed for the purposes of the 1987 trial, but through the lens of modern day techniques. DNA profiling, which although available in 1986 and 1987, was then in its infancy. The jury was told that in 2014, samples taken from the left forearm of one of the victims in 1986 had been re-examined in the hope of finding traces of DNA. This yielded skin flakes, which were subjected to ultra-modern profiling techniques to produce a result that was one billion times more likely if Bishop's DNA was present than if it was absent. Now, Bishop suggested that Nicola's father, Barry, was to blame, telling the jury that the police spent 32 years building a case against the wrong man. Now, Russell Bishop was not in court every day for his nine-week trial, and he also complained to the judge about feeling suicidal over his temporary stay at Belmarsh and requesting that he really just wanted to return to Franklin. Now, at the 2018 trial, the prosecution put forward a different timeline. Now, Altman presented evidence that the girls were alive at 6.30pm and that Bishop returned to Wild Park. Defence witnesses at the 1987 trial returned as prosecution witnesses in 2018. At this trial, Altman argued that the forensic samples taken as tapings in 1986 were so carefully handled by the police and preserved by scientists that he could present them as a time capsule to prove Bishop's guilt. Now, on the 10th of December 2018, after a nine-week trial, a jury of seven men and five women returned a guilty verdict after two and a half hours of deliberation. On the 11th of December 2018, Russell Bishop received two life sentences with a minimum of 36 years in prison. Now, remember earlier when I mentioned that in the initial trial, Jennifer Johnson, who was Russell's partner, was going to testify and say the jumper was his, but in the end she didn't. Well, in May 2021, Jennifer was found guilty of perjury and perverting the course of justice, having admitted she lied about the sweatshirt in the original trial. She was remanded in custody to await sentencing, and on the 19th of May, Mr Justice Fraser sentenced Jennifer to six years in prison, stating that her crimes were at the most serious end of the scale. Jennifer did not attend the sentence hearing, having refused to do so. Now, that's Jennifer and Russell, who didn't attend court every time when they were on trial, which I didn't know you could actually do. However, there is currently a, pet a petition that I believe may have just been passed um, either this year or last year to be discussed in Parliament, which is then made to force offenders to be present at their trials. I didn't even know that they didn't, they couldn't be. But yeah, this is a big thing going on at the minute. Now, Jennifer, she is currently imprisoned in HMP Bronzefield, which is Britain's high security prison for women. Now, Russell Bishop, he actually died from cancer on the 20th of January 2022 at the age of 55. He had been rushed to hospital from HMP Franklin in County Durham after his condition deteriorated. Now, I want to say it was brain cancer. I'm not 100% sure, but it was an one of the awful ones to go by. Um, don't know if that's karma, but yeah, that's the story of um, Nicola and Karen. Wow. 
Yeah. That was a story. Mm-hmm. I can't believe I hadn't heard of that one again, though, but I thought that was really, really interesting. I think you covered it very well. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's one of those ones as well that I think, I know we've said it in a few things as well, that, you know, if think protocol was followed or, you know, if something was preserved better or if we just, one wee tweak, something could have, you know, he could have been jailed sooner and that other girl wouldn't have had to have gone through what she did. Oh, so easy to say though isn't it exactly hindsight is a wonderful thing um but you know it took years and years and years in a way I guess the families of Karen and Nicola mm-hmm. wouldn't have got peace but you know they know that the killer is now behind bars well he's now dead but he was behind bars absolutely yeah the best kind of justice you can get 